Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Somebody who's trying to compete, we don't want her in our group, typically. So there is competition. It doesn't just go away, but it goes underground. Whereas male friendships will say, well, mine's bigger. No, mine's bigger. No, mine's bigger. No, my dad could beat up your dad. And they're fine and proud to have that. And for the hundredth time, welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla, and for the past three years, along with our guests, we've explored a hundred different topics. And today, we're talking about pegging. Effie and I are going to talk about sex-positive parenting. We're going to be talking about codependent relationships, compersion, and jealousy, sex in the Bible. Today, we're speaking about daddy. And for today's episode, we want to explore friendships. We spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about romantic relationships, and today we want to take a deep dive into friendships and challenge the idea that romantic relationships are more important than platonic ones. Specifically, we want to explore the unique bonds within female friendships. Well, the timing worked out as if by magic or (laughs) subconscious manifestation for a hundredth episode. A hundred episodes wild so wild we started off yeah we keep we always say this but it's just true we were in like basements in brooklyn and now mm. we're in earphones Airways across everywhere the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's super crazy and exciting and congratulations to you yeah. and to me congratulations to us. To us we did it a hundred different topics a hundred different conversations and many many more to go Many more to go. Yes, yes. I feel like this is a milestone and the beginning of the next chapter of our um, saga, as I'd like to I'd like to think. And like I said, as if by magic or I believe subconscious one, a manifestation, a bunch of things came together almost naturally, almost organically for this episode. I've been mm-hmm. thinking a lot about our new look and feel. Uh, we've been wanting to do a revamp for a long time and we've never really had time mm-hmm. because we're too busy trying to produce a podcast every week for the last hundred weeks. So we haven't actually had the bandwidth to do it. But uh, we made some time because it's important to us. And we found somebody who patiently and diligently took our feedback and our thoughts mm-hmm. and our ideas and our tweaking and, and details and, and came up with something that we really, really like. Yeah, brought them to life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's been a fun process. It actually kind of reminded me of my old life in advertising. Yeah, that makes sense. Like looking at all the colors and the names and the font. We've looked through hundreds of colors and yeah. fonts and, yeah. and different different versions of sepia. Yeah. And we have landed on a new look and feel that feels yeah. aligned to where Curious Fox has grown. The Fox has served us for 99 episodes and we are grateful um, and served our work before that. And now, and now it's time for something different. And so that means that you have heard me invite you 99 times now to join our Instagram and our Facebook group and our Patreon. 
So here's the hundredth more. But <laughs> truly this time, if you if you go to our Instagram, you're now gonna see you're gonna see this new look and feel. And we would love yeah. for you to weigh in on on whether we've caught and captured the curiosity and the foxiness of the mm. work that we do. So new look on Instagram, Facebook, new focus. We're really now in the Facebook group going to be focusing on the podcast and using that as a platform to talk about the different topics, to gather questions for our guests, to hear how things have resonated with people. So Mm. go there and then Patreon, same. It'll be all this new look, new behind the scenes. We're more intentionally doing some behind the scene questions with each of our guests now. And so lots of things for you to check out. The other piece that I, we talked about this morning, we just, I just realized it just came to me, even though we've been looking at this new look and feel for weeks now and an active conversation with our designer who's helping us. The thing that I hadn't noticed is that as we transition into this new look, we've actually put, we retired the fox and we mm-hmm. are actually on the artwork. We found a, a, a cute yeah. little photo that we like and we are a part of the cover art for for the podcast, which is kind of, you know, like on the 100th episode, we decided that we're going to mm-hmm. just get on that. Yeah, we were resistant to that for a really long time. Yeah, We were like, it's not about us. It's about the people. Yes. And that is true. But it's also, we have to be clear that it's our version of <laughs> these of, topics. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. our specific curiosities and the dynamic that you and I have and right. have built over the past few years. And so to your point, it is interesting and timely that for the very first episode of our new look and feel, our new logo is going to have you and I all cuddled up next to each other and smiling and happy and joyful about the work that we do. And so today we get to talk about friendships and dissect that a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. And this podcast, this, this body of work is also really a product of collaborative female friendship. So it's kind of, mm-hmm. again, like another layer on this hundredth episode is that we are also exploring friendships and our friendship and where it brought us. Here we are. So it's, mm-hmm. it's super interesting. Yeah. And you know, you and I were incredibly close, but neither of us came into female friendships easily. I think mm-hmm. it was probably both of us like later in life, we started to to build those female friendships more. Mm-hmm. That was not something that was a staple in either of our lives growing up, which makes me even more curious to understand and explore the dynamics of female friendships. And so we are lucky to have our guide through this conversation, which is Dr. Jamie Arona Krems. She's a social psychologist who uses interdisciplinary theories from evolutionary biology, animal behavior, behavioral ecology to explore friendships. Particularly, she focuses on the often understudied friendly and competitive interactions amongst women and the stereotypes and prejudices that shapes people's social landscapes. We started our conversation with Jamie from the basics. So what is a friendship? I think in our science, we define it as a medium to long-term relationship that is affectionate between two genetically unrelated conspecifics, which just means two people who aren't already related, not kin, basically. Mm. In the non-human animal world, there's a lot of friendship between kin. But for humans, we'll just say an affectionate relationship between two people who aren't related. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by affection? Yeah, that is a great question. What I would say in terms of affection, so there's positive feeling toward one another, Mm -hmm. but there's also this sort of mutual positive valuation, which simply means 
I value you and you value me. And we also have common knowledge that we value one another. That is really what cements the bond. I know you like me. I know we're friends. I know that you know that I like you and you know we're friends. <laughs> That's super interesting, actually. This is the first time I'm actually hearing that. Uh, and it feels yeah. like I'm just sitting with that going, yeah, that feels like a really good definition. And shouldn't that be the foundation of any relationship? I mean, one would hope so. You have sort of in friendship or in romantic relationships or in the sort of in between, you have this sort of flirting period where you're like, okay, I like you. Let me offer how much I like you, but not, not too overtly. And then you get to see if somebody likes you back. And eventually you develop this idea that, okay, I like you this much. You like me this much. And we're at the same level. And then maybe you also can have a sort of openness in your relationship where you could talk about, oh, hey, we're friends and we like each other this much. There's that common knowledge there too. It's interesting because as you're describing it, it could all, it feels often like, like a romantic relationship, right? There's like that tension and there's that, that, and then there's the naming it. Can you talk about what is then the distinction between a friendship and a romantic relationship? Yeah. So in my line of work, so social psych or evolutionary social science, these relationships often serve some of the same functions and some of the different functions. Typically, we think about romantic relationships and we think about sex. We think about kissing. We think about all of the good things that those romantic relationships do and bring us, but also they're sort of what we'd call a direct route to reproductive fitness when you're in a productive or reproductive relationship like that. Friendships, they are sort of like a Swiss, a Swiss army knife. You can have sex with your friends, but you don't have to. If you're not having sex with your friends, you can have your friends support you in conflicts. You can have your friends emotionally support you, give you a loan when you need it, you know, give you advice when you need it. Friends sort of do 8 million different things that help us survive and thrive. Mm. Mm. That has just opened an entirely new like <laughs> file in my brain around like there's a new folder in my like there's a file in my brain a folder in my brain that says like relationships big folder and then suddenly there's a whole yeah like a bunch of things just like connected and has made me realize like things tipped upside down not tipped upside down and got shuffled right that now friendship really makes sense as, as a foundation of any relationship and I like the idea of saying I, I like I mean I what you're saying which is a friendship is like a multi-use tool and then you can if you want to add an addendum where you say and sex then that's like one expression of that yeah you can sort of like there's a menu of things that friendships do mm -hmm. and if you're thinking the restaurant is like social support other strangers aren't going to help me when i'm in need but my mm -hmm. friends are mm -hmm. and so i'm in the social support restaurant and maybe i want them to be mean to a person i don't like and thank you mm. to the friends of mine who do that because <laughs> I'm mean and I love it. Mm. Or maybe I want them to have sex with me or maybe I want them to punch someone or maybe I just want them to listen to me when I've had a bad day. Um, mm. All of those things are on the menu. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting in it because I'm like, wow, I really, it was such a broader definition than I expected and it makes so much sense. And I like how romantic relationships can sit into that space. So we are friends and we are romantically bonded. Is there a distinction just in terms of naming it? So as you noted, there can be a lot of similarities. At some point, does someone then say, I actually want you to be my 
my partner versus my friend. And that's the distinction because that people are friends for a long time. And then it like switches into something else. And like, what creates that switch? Yeah. I, I wonder if that switch is sort of at some point you have to label, you don't have to label things, but you can label things. People feel comfortable that way often. And so that might be where you generate that common knowledge. What are we? What functions does, does our relationship serve? What are we doing here? Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's when you go from friend to partner or friend to best friend or mm-hmm. partner to friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the distinction between female friendships and male friendships? Oh, yeah. I mean... I could do this all day. Um, But first I should say male and female, we value friendships the same. We love our friends the same. We want friendships the same. Friends help us do a lot of the same things. They lead to better health outcomes. And we want a lot of the same things in our friends. But there are also some things that we want that we don't have in common. So, for example, um, some work by my best friend, Keila Williams, a Mm -hmm. paper that I'm on that's in press at EHB. We looked at what men and women want in their friends, and we focused on what the differences might be. Because people look a lot at those possible sex differences in romantic relationship preferences, but not in friend preferences. And what we find is that males sort of want somebody who can help them gain status or fight back and things like that. They'll prioritize that. Whereas women are going to prioritize sort of emotional and social support. And that makes Mm. sense. So there are some friend preferences that are a little bit different. But again, overall, the things men and women want, or sorry, males and females want in friends most are going to be trustworthiness, intelligence, and those things. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have more in common than not. And then the structure looks different. And I think this is one of the coolest things. Most female friendships are female-female friendships. They are dyadic, two-person friendships. They are characterized by being exceedingly emotionally close and open, and we share all of our secrets, sort of like dogs bearing our necks to each other. Like, here, here's the worst thing I've ever thought about everyone in my life. Please take these secrets, and maybe you could destroy me with them later, but now we're going to be really close. (laughs) Whereas males, uh, their friendships are typically multi-male friendships. So three or more, um, and they're more what people call sort of shoulder-to-shoulder friendships than Mm. females face-to-face friendships. Males Mm. in a line, playing video games next to each other, watching sports next to each other, they're sort of engaged in this other activity that isn't this face-to-face conversation. A few other sort of brief overview things that are different, males' friendships tend to be more robust Uh, to perturbation and issues than females friendships are which Mm. is surprising right because you think Mm. females must have these really deep emotionally close friendships well they actually blow up a lot and they can end really acrimoniously which I've certainly have had happen and has left me a little bit terrified of female friendships in my life sometimes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, female friendships are also marked by the sort of the worst thing that you could be especially as a girl is be considered superior striving among other girls in your friendship group. Mm. Somebody who's trying to compete, we don't want her in our group typically. So there is competition. It doesn't just go away, but it goes underground. Whereas male friendships, they'll say, well, mine's bigger. No, mine's bigger. No, mine's bigger. No, my dad could beat up your dad. And they're fine and proud to have that. 
which again goes back to this notion that they're sort of more okay with this perturbation. Mm-hmm. And we don't sort of know why that is. There are multiple possibilities, but um, yeah, those are some of the biggies when we think about friendship across cultures and across eras. Those seem to be tried and true sex differences. Mm-hmm. Are these more current and sort of socialized in the modern world or do they have evolutionary sort of long tails like are they coming are they coming through you know was it like that in the caveman times you know or is it like the modern life interpretation because of all the social reasons of today i think that probably our long evolutionary history and a lot of the modern pressures work hand in hand and um, we've set up a lot of modern society um, as a reflection of you know, how our brains were wired to work through these evolutionary pressures. One thing that I think we can rely on is this notion that throughout evolutionary history, males typically banded together and they engaged in intergroup coalitionary warfare. Mm -hmm. Uh, Females didn't. Like, I love the Amazons. I love that mythology. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the archaeological record, the historical record, you don't see females banding together in groups on Themyscira or wherever else, engaging in physical warfare. Mm -hmm. And so these pressures of banding together meant that, you know, hey, uh, another guy, a newcomer, he's probably going to be pretty valuable to me. Females, they didn't have that pressure. A newcomer was more often a possible threat. Somebody that could take resources from me meant my group had to walk longer and farther to get the same amount of resources. So there are some of these sort of evolutionary and recurrent pressures that likely bear on our relationships now because we do see guys in these multi-male groups banding together. On the female side, there are some ideas of what might be going on, but it's still pretty muddy. People don't pay attention to females and and women enough in in this work, certainly. People like uh, Tanya Reynolds have uh, posited um, sort of similar to the great Anne Campbell that maybe because historically or across evolutionary time, females often had to leave their kin group and they went where their male partner, uh, they went into his kin group. Maybe female friendships are so close because they had to sort of replace their kin. So that's a possibility. There have been some other ideas. Maybe female friendships are so close because females can become mothers and the um, sort of female friendship system co-ops this whole maternal love and affection system. There's little support for that idea, but it's out there. Definitely there there are evolutionary pressures that have shaped what modern friendship looks like. I'm wondering, in your descriptions, you've mentioned rivalry and you mentioned threat within Mm -hmm. the context of female friendships. And I think that is a part of the idea of what is involved in female friendships, that at some point there's going to be rivalry, there's going to be threat, to your point, that we're going to be really close, but then possibly use that against you. Like That's a part of the stereotype of a a female friendship. Um, And the work that you do is around cooperation kind of versus competition. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Talk about, it feels like there are some roots in that it's not necessarily a myth that there's rivalry and threat in female relationships. So maybe expanding on that and then talking a little bit about how that translates to your work. Yeah. Um, so first I should say that like there are sort of two big schools of thought on female friendships, whether we're talking about like going back to Aristotle or even modern social psychology. One is 
female friendships are the closest, most beautiful uh, friendships that you possibly can imagine. They're just the paradigm of friendship. And the other is females aren't actually able to be friends with each other. They just sort of ally with each other, but secretly hate each other. So Mm -hmm. female friendship is an impossibility. Mm -hmm. So what is it? Is it this paradigm or is it this impossibility? And I think that paradox highlights a whole lot about female friendship in general, which is that, yeah, it's both. It's obviously Mm -hmm. both. Female friendships are incredibly close, but they are less stable than male friendships. Female friendships are overtly super egalitarian, but maybe covertly a little bit competitive. So they're all of these things. And in my work, I think I'm attuned to the notion that, yes, female friendships are really beneficial, But just as males who are the same age and in the same place are more likely to compete with one another than, say, males who are way older or way younger, females form friendships with females who are the same age as them, and they're going to compete too. So one piece of the puzzle is this idea that female competition is somehow scandalous. Like, males can do it, and that's fine, and we don't care. Mm -hmm. We expect it. But female friendship, ooh, that's nasty. That's scandalous. Those catty bitches. But to the extent that female friendships and male friendships are both characterized by maybe really high cooperation, but some competition, it might just be that men are better able to sort of deal with that competition or they don't care about that competition. The pressures are such that I'd rather have you in my life than not. Females, for several possible reasons, that competition can be really rough. It can feel crappy. Also, for one reason that um, we, we sort of mentioned before, these friendships are really close. You know all my secrets. Mm-hmm. So that is a really scary, it, it's as if friendships give women ammunition on one another. Mm-hmm. It's a really scary place to be. Jumping into your work and thinking about your publications and, and what you study, what is it that you hope that people learn from or take away from your work? Potentially, as you were digging in some things that some that were surprising or some conclusions that you were coming to, what are some of the takeaways? So I think there are a few things that we need to think about, and they're all sort of under the umbrella of, my God, friendships are important. Please pay attention to them. We give all of this airtime and energy and money and research focus to romantic relationships, and that makes sense. They're really important. But friendships are important too. Friendships might not, you know, always lead to children to the same extent that romantic relationships do, but friendships make us more likely to survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, we need to pay attention to them. We need to know what people are attracted to in friends. And that's work that um, Keila Williams and I have done together. And we have a paper under review too that says, hey, surprising thing. People might say that they want kind friends, and they mean that. But what they really mean is they want friends who are kind to them and Mm. slightly less kind to strangers. (laughs) But they also want friends who are vicious motherfuckers to our enemies. And you don't get that finding if you don't pay attention to friendship. Mm -hmm. So that's one surprising thing, and we need to pay attention to that, what we're attracted to. We also need to pay attention to these tactics for maintaining our friendships. So if you're a really good friend and everybody wants to be your best friend, then there's going to be competition for you. There's sort of a market where everybody wants you on their arm. And if that's the case, then the person who's already your best friend might have to do things to maintain that friendship. 
mm-hmm. and they can be really nice to you. They can maybe be mean to other people, but uh, some of the work that we've done is on friendship jealousy. And that's another surprising thing that, again, you only get to when you think about how important friendship is. And the whole idea there is that feelings of friendship jealousy, they might really suck to feel. They might be a negative emotion to experience, but they can really help us hang on to our valued friendships. Yeah, I have a specific question around that too. Whether there's a distinction between friendship jealousy and romantic jealousy is it essentially the same feeling with a different story or is it uh, you know is it a different is it a different type of feeling yeah so first i should say that um there's envy and we could think about envy as sort of a two-person relationship mm-hmm. i want what you have and then there's jealousy and that's sort of a three-person relationship i am worried that i might lose what i have to this third person or an interloper And that can happen in friendships and that can happen in romantic relationships where it's incredibly well studied. It could be that sort of the the phylogeny of this emotion or where it originally came from is actually in uh, kin relationships, for example. So maybe I'm an infant and I want my mother to pay attention to me and not my new sibling. Maybe it came originally or originally developed in romantic relationships, maybe in friendships. We don't really know. What seems to be the case, though, is that jealousy is a pretty broad emotion that fits into a lot of our social relationships, and we're going to feel it whenever we might lose a valued partner. For all these relationship types, the sort of inputs into the system, um, or what makes jealousy go, so to speak, is how much we value this person that we might lose, and also how threatening the person is that's the interloper. So are they likely to replace us? And then in friendship versus romantic relationships, these things just sort of look different, right? So how much I value a romantic partner, a casual dating partner is a little, an acquaintance is very little, um, my spouse might be very high, my best friend might be very high. And what makes a replacement threat or what makes the interloper more likely to replace me is going to look different in these relationships. So an interloper who looks like Captain America, although that's not particularly my bag, but you know, (laughs) an interloper who looks like Christian Bale, then my partner should worry. An interloper who has like bucks like Jeff Bezos, then my partner should worry. Interloper who looks like Rachel Weiss, then my partner should worry. (laughs) Those kinds of things make a more threatening romantic interloper. As for best friends, what makes you sort of irreplaceable to your best friend really varies. And so the sort of most direct cue that that interloper is a replacement threat is whether your best friend, so say I'm best friends with you, if you pick somebody else over me to do, like be your plus one to a party or a wedding, that is going to cue to me like, uh uh-oh, now I need to feel jealousy. If you're just spending 40 hours a week with this person at work, I don't give a shit. You're not, they're not going to take my place. But if you pick them to tell all your problems to or, we used to have, you know, a wine and paint thing. It's so interesting. Cause I, uh, so I have a 10 year old daughter and it is fascinating to watch the friendship dynamics, you know, Oof. as they evolve yeah. in her, as she's aged, but she has her school best friend. And then she has mm-hmm. her cousin who's like her life best friend. And I would 
the best way I could describe the, her relationship with her cousin is like a queer platonic relationship. And that if, if they were adults and they were not related to each other, you would think that they are partners. They could be on FaceTime with each other for eight hours straight. They just eat meals with each other. They like, it, like they, that friendship is so close. And when we were talking about doing a, a gathering for her birthday in the spring, she's named that she did not want to bring those two people together mm-hmm. because what if, what if school best friend and life best friend actually like them each other more than they like her. And so mm-hmm. she was like, I need to keep those relationships separate because I don't want them to actually like them, like each other more than they like me. And so I appreciate that she knows it and can just name it. <laughs> that <laughs> is it amazing. was just fascinating to, to watch that like processing in her mind. Yeah. I mean, I don't think she's alone. I just think that adults tend to laugh it off or pretend that they don't feel it. But she is completely aware that that friendship jealousy might play a role in sort of the diminution or dissolution of either of those friendships. One cool thing that we find in our data, um, so we asked people, for example, imagine that your acquaintance made a new close friend and your acquaintance became closer to that person than your acquaintance is to you. And we changed this so it's an acquaintance, a close friend, a best friend. And for the best friend, we also ask them, so not just imagine your best friend became close with somebody else, but imagine your best friend and one of your other close friends hit it off. How would mm. you feel? And what we see is that particularly among women, that is a huge jealousy trigger that makes jealousy Mm. explode because in women's minds, certainly more so than men's in our data, at least that might be the beginning of the end of two friendships. Whereas Mm. for guys, they seem to be much more like, ah, all right, we're consolidating this group. We're coming together. There are more positive emotions there, but women, especially at any threat to their best friendship, but a threat to their best friendship that comes from another close friend, it's, it's, it's on. Wow. That's like, the, that's nuclear option. Okay. What does it look like when one party has a new romantic relationship? Is that almost expected? Do you, do you kind of say, well, you know, it's part of the course. Is, do, do we know anything about that? Yeah. So we asked if your best friend had a new romantic relationship versus a new really close friend, how jealous are you? And what we find time and time again for males and females is that people are way more jealous when their friend makes a new friend than when their friend forms a new romantic partner. And our data suggests that that's because people expect romantic partners to take up a ton of their best friend's time. New relationships are really costly in terms of time. Mm. But the new romantic partner is likely to fulfill some functions for your best friend that you don't, including Mm. very likely sex. Mm -hmm. And so a new romantic partner isn't going to take your place. You're Mm. still going to be the person that they go to to talk shit or to, I don't know, play Minecraft or whatever people do. So you're still going to be that person as a best friend. The Mm -hmm. new romantic partner doesn't threaten you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There are thousands of articles around how to find a romantic partner, Mm -hmm. not so much how to find a friend. And if you talk about as an adult, I, I want a friend. I don't know how to make a friend. Then people will see that potentially as a sign of immaturity. And yet it is something that we all need to do. Again, going back to my daughter, she would go to the playground, literally run up to a child and say, do you want to be my friend? And they would say, yeah. And then they would hold hands and, and just like skip away. 
that would be lovely <laughs> if I could just be like, you know, someone said something like great at a meeting and afterwards I was like, you're cool. Can we be friends? Um, <laughs> so I'm just wondering about that in terms of what you've learned about creating friendships. This actually makes you think of what you were saying, Jamie, earlier about value, right? That there's essentially we mutually agree to value each other at the same level is what, what you sort of said, which, you know, blew my mind. I'm still mm-hmm. pondering on that. And when I, when I hear Jackie's daughter's story, it, it makes me think, oh, like at that age, our value system is still very simple. And the idea of valuing somebody equally and mutually is almost like a no-brainer in that it is really through years of being in this world that we develop a value system that is maybe more nuanced for whatever reasons. And then we kind of, when we do sort of the subconscious sum, that it is more varied uh, later on in our lives than it is earlier in our lives. Yeah, I think we grow to be aware of, uh, I might look at a woman and see, okay, that's the handbag that she's carrying. It has all these logos on it. Mm, She's probably not for me, even in that very brief look. And that suggests that you size one another up in older life and older age. And I'm saying older age isn't like 20 and up here. (laughs) You get all of these cues and you sort of also become more yourself and maybe a little more rigid in what you're willing to accept and not willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is when you're a kid, you can hang out with somebody and that's really valuable to you. Just like you're Mm -hmm. saying, when you're an adult, you probably have more friendship niches filled and your finite time that you're willing to spend on somebody else. I mean, it takes 200 hours to make a friend, according to researcher Jeffrey Hall, a close friend. The amount of time you have to spend to do that, you're only going to confer that time on somebody that really is worth it. And maybe fewer people are worth it when you're an adult. But also, I mean, I should say, going back to this notion of how hard it is to make friends in adulthood, I mean, this is such a common theme. It is shockingly difficult to make friends in adulthood. And especially in the US, we move more than maybe ever before. There's really high um, relational mobility is what researcher Joanna Shug would call it. So not only are we moving, but it's harder to maybe make new friends potentially as well because you're moving so much. So if that's the case, like that's actually a huge deal because not only is there this loneliness epidemic, But we think about that loneliness epidemic. And the first thing that you should think about is loneliness is bad for your health. Mm -hmm. There's incredible research on that. And the question has to be, how do you make friends then? How do you keep your friends that you've, you know, developed over a long period of time? I mean, to some extent, one way that you can become irreplaceable to your friend is just by having been there forever and knowing all the inside jokes and knowing the history. Mm I'm wondering if there anything that that plays in if sexual orientation or gender identity play a role in these mm-hmm. dynamics. Yeah, so I, I should say first, like us queer folks get shortchanged a lot when it comes to social science research. Here, here, um, particularly work in the mating domain focuses on generally cisgender heterosexual people and. And there are some reasons for that that make sense, which is just that that's really a lot easier work to do. Um, If you're coming from an evolutionary perspective, that's kind of uh, where your thinking starts. And I should say it's easier just because there seem to be more people that fall into that bucket. So you're going to get more of them in your surveys. 
you have to really go after people that don't fall into that big bucket. And that can take a lot of money, that could take a lot of time, um, that could take some sensitivity training so you don't come mm-hmm. off like a huge asshole. Mm-hmm. So there are all of those practical hurdles that I mm-hmm. should acknowledge. It's not like people just are like, oh, queer people, I don't care. I also think the queer people is a big umbrella. I yeah. feel like the, the yeah. nuances across that queer, it's like it's the really part in the middle that is like, all the shades, all the shades of the rainbow, right? That's literally thing. Whereas like if you're dealing with the, the heterosexual cis situation, you're with the binary, which is much easier to write data on, I imagine. And then oh, if you say, yes. and queer people, yeah. and then you have to go into like so many different variables to accommodate for yeah. all of the types of queer people out there. You are a hundred percent right. And we could push that even further because a lot of the research is like, okay, well then let's look at gay men. Okay. But then it uses gay men as itself like a sort of monolith. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. so I have some uh, data with some of my graduate students right now exploring expectations of aggression for men and women who are gay or straight. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is that people think that uh, straight men are going to engage in direct aggression. So like punching. Um, yelling, and gay men are going to engage in more indirect aggression, like insults that are sort of uh, sneaky and gossip uh, and exclusion. So they essentially think that gay men and straight women are going to use the same kind of aggression, this indirect, and that straight men and maybe gay women, maybe lesbians are going to use direct aggression. But when you start to describe the characteristics of the gay man, in the study, everything blows up. If you describe him essentially as like a lumberjack, then they think, yeah, he's going to punch people. Mm -hmm. If you describe him as more of what that community might call a twink, Mm -hmm. then they're going to think, yeah, he's going to go engage in gossip. So at least in some research on lesbians, they divide or there's nuance with respect to butch and femme. For gay men, it's generally just, here's what gay men do as if they're a monolith. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're a hundred percent right. There is so much nuance in this like giant, giant queer group that people don't notice or always get at. They might feel uncomfortable. So I don't mind saying the word twink um, because I uh, know people that would identify as twink. Mm -hmm. But some people might worry that they're insulting someone if they said that. Mm -hmm. So there are all of these sort of nuances at multiple levels of doing the work and then talking about the work that are hard. What I can say, at least with respect to the friendship jealousy stuff, is that our samples, both student samples and U.S. samples of online community participants, were large enough that we did collect enough people who identified at least as non-heterosexual. For the people who were non-heterosexual in our studies, they're reporting the same exact patterns and feelings of friendship jealousy. So I think that's really interesting, and I think that tells us that it really is just about, you know, a valued relationship you don't want to lose, even if the lines of sort of romance or not romance, or maybe this is my ex's or my partner's ex or not, are a little bit blurred. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Fascinating. I wanted to actually add also in there um, people who identify as asexual, right? Which is sort of another, mm. putting another cog in the, um, you know, in, in the system in terms of the, if, if the thing that distinguishes between a, a romantic relationship, romantic jealousy and sexual relationship, sexual jealousy is sex. How do we go about defining, labeling, researching, understanding, supporting asexual relationships 
what yeah. then defines a romantic relationship versus a platonic relationship, a friendship? And so this is not work that I've done based on what I'd know. I mean, my two cents here would be to go into the community and ask what the relationship functions to do for people. Mm. So when the relationship is maybe intimate or romantic, but asexual, that it might still function to do some things that might be different from a friendship relationship. What is it that this relationship brings for you? Because again, it, at least in terms of understanding friendship jealousy, knowing what makes somebody irreplaceable in an asexual relationship is going to tell us what we should look for as a cue to what makes somebody jealous when they might lose that relationship. Mm. It's a good way to just look at any relationship, right? It's a good question to mm -hmm. ask. Relationship by design is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast. Like the idea of relationship by default, which is these like default setting relationships that we roll out, like we find ourselves in, especially in romantic relationships. It's this like you do all the things that society tells you, you get onto the, uh, the relationship ladder and then you sort of progress. And that is essentially a relationship by default. What would it look like if you went down another path as a relationship by design, whereas ans answering questions like this, right? What functions mm -hmm. is this relationship going to uh, fulfill? How is it going to do that? Like, how are we going to ensure mm -hmm. that we actually stay on track? And while do that, have fun, connect, learn whatever our like value system is, what are things that are important to us to have an approach by design and I what you've just said that last question actually is a great question to answer for ourselves as we do the relationship by design process that's actually what in our first couple of studies in this paper that we have in um, the journal of personality and social psychology which is like our, our big journal and empirical journal in, in social psych the first studies that we did to look at friendship jealousy asked people to name their best friend and to name the activities and functions that that friendship fulfilled. So what do you do with this person? And what does this relationship sort of function to do? And then we use that information that people typed in in next questions. So if you said, we chat together and it functions to give me emotional support, in our next question, we would have said, okay, participant, now imagine that your best friend is chatting with somebody else and using somebody else for emotional support. Or in another condition, imagine that your best friend is just no longer chatting with you and no longer using you for emotional support or giving you emotional support. So either in one condition, your friend is using somebody else for those functions, or your friend just stops using you. And what we find is that if your friend is using somebody else, you feel a lot of jealousy. If your friend just stops using you, you don't really feel jealousy. Jealousy, again, is this three-party emotion. Mm. If your friend just stops using you, you feel incredibly sad, but not jealous. Yeah. Mm. But I, I love what you're talking about, relationship by design. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious, and we didn't get to ask, are there certain people that are more inclined to have close friendships than others? So Effie and I, for example, neither of us had what you've described those kinds of friendships, female friendships. And mm -hmm. so we didn't have that kind that level of closeness or for myself in particular, I had situational friends. So every school year I would have my best friend for that year because I like that served that purpose. And so I'm wondering what separates us into to how we identify and find friendship. 
I mean, that's a great question. And I think friendship is so understudied that we don't really have a very good answer. Mm -hmm. The best answer I can give you based on preliminary data by a woman named Elaine Perea, she presented these data, but they're not published and peer reviewed. They suggest that typically, at least in the U.S., young women sort of use their best friends across all situations and are likely to be closer and want to be closer. Whereas sort of the situational friendships that you're talking about are more typical of men. Um, They'll sort of have a steady buddy and a gym buddy and a wingman. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not as close. Uh, And again, I think that just means we haven't sort of taken friendships really seriously and studied them enough to be able to give you an answer. Because, yeah, Mm -hmm. I'd like to give you an answer. And I don't think we know yet. Yeah, it's interesting. So we want to ask you four questions and maybe these are things that your best friend doesn't even know about you. Maybe she, maybe she does. Maybe she'll hear these answers for the very first time on this podcast. We'll I feel see. like it's, the, the answers are the, what your best friend should know about you. <laughs> so the first one is what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? Your friends female friends are going to be the source of your greatest joys and your greatest pains and fuck those fuckers. It's going to happen, but eventually, you know, you'll find your people. I think every teenage girl needs to hear that right now. Yes. Um, Yes. It's yeah. Whenever I'm like, even in a doctor's office and they're like, Oh, what do you do? And I talk about what I do. Everyone has a story about a time that their best friend did something amazing for them. And a story about the time when their former best friend just like broke their heart, slashed their gut, took their intestines out and wrapped them around a tree. Like Mm -hmm. it's horrible. Mm -hmm. Wow. Fascinating. How either in your work or in your life in general, how do you challenge the status quo? I mean, A, there's being here. I'm queer, I'm fat, and I'm fucking awesome. So there's that. Um, A woman who says she's fucking awesome, by the way, it's even still scary to say it, but I am a great researcher. Um, And my research also focuses on female sociality, which in a lot of social psych where I live, we sort of think about the default maybe implicitly as, as the, you know, male cognition, male behavior. And I think taking seriously that women might face a lot of the same, but also some distinct challenges and might have distinct ways for navigating those challenges. I think taking that seriously really matters. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Jamie, what are you curious about lately? Oh my God, there are so many things that I am curious about. And this is one of the best parts of being in academia. I mean, yes, it's a hard life. And yes, you get paid crap, but you get to ask and answer your own questions, Mm -hmm. which is one of the coolest things in the world. And what we're working on right now, one of many things is exploring some of the features that render women high status in other people's eyes. A lot of these features have probably been overlooked and we're starting to explore those things. So when you look at a woman, what makes her high status? That's what I'm really curious about right mm. now. That was interesting. Thank you, Jamie, for being on the show. Thanks for a great conversation. This is a lot of fun. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. We don't talk about friendships enough and yeah. we definitely should. 
that episode for me was so rich with understanding and new ways of thinking and understanding and explaining and relating to relationship dynamics from a structural place, like less story, more structural than what we were used to. And it's just like, oh, so many things are still firing in my brain. And one of my (laughs) big ones that I'm like, whoa, is around affection that friendships are essentially what I'm now calling a a triad of mutual value. That the idea Mm. that you value each, like the friendships are about two people, so a dyadic dynamic with both parties valuing each other, knowing that the other person values them and is sure that the other person knows that they're valued by you. Like that triad Mm -hmm. of mutual value, I'm like blown away, blown away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. So many things come in threes (laughs) in the work that we do. Right. And I think it really speaks to our relationship now that we're talking about Mm -hmm. it. Like that that we do hit all those boxes, very much so. I think that was one of my takeaways is that I, I was thinking about our friendship as she was talking and thinking that we just don't, I don't think we acknowledge it enough to each other mm. or acknowledge the 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 rapport, the relationship. I think this is probably the longest consecutive amount of time that I've been friends with someone, maybe outside of like <laughs> high school. And that was because mm-hmm. we're, you know, in class together and for four years. And so I don't remember that moment where we, I was like, I, I value you. And you're like, I value you too. And we're like, we value each other the same. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we do. And we do. And yeah. we know that mm-hmm. we do. And we yes. know that the other person knows that we value them, even yes. though we've never actually yes. said the words. But I feel like yes. we, now, we, yes. now, we now have. I value and appreciate you, Jacqueline, deeply. I value and appreciate you, Effie. <laughs> and folks don't know that behind the scenes, we will will write together and we'll, we'll create different things together. And we are often writing in the same document. And mm-hmm. it's a Google Doc and we can see each other writing and are mm-hmm. editing on top of each other or adding things. And it's one voice. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we have that level of mind meld or yes. like we'll both see something like with, you know, with the branding and have feedback and I'll share it. And you're like, that's exactly the feedback I was yes. going to give. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So that's pretty yeah. remarkable. And I want to, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. And what it, what it made me reflect on was, so last episode, episode, or rather two episodes ago, episode 98, when we spoke with sexuality, witch Helen Belay, outside of that interview and conversation that we had with her, she did a tarot reading for us. Yes. And so we recorded that tarot reading. It's going to go up on Patreon so that you'll be able to see everything that we saw and see our wonder. (laughs) As each time she flipped a card and explained it, we're like, (gasps) the truth of it all. (laughs) How does it know? But one of the things that one of the the cards revealed were that we need to pay more attention to the lessons that we are learning and the connections that we have outside of romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because I think, you know, during conversation, you and I were reflecting on, we we talk so much about romantic partnership mm-hmm. that if, if one of us is not in romantic partnership, it's like, mm-hmm. well, then what are we drawing from? Mm-hmm. Like, where are we, you know, what can we learn? What are the lessons? And that the card was saying, actually, you have relationships with lots of people mm-hmm. and you can draw from all of those things, whether or not they're romantic. And so this just felt like a validation of that, of... Absolutely. Pay more attention to friendships. Yes. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. It's amazing how these, this hundredth episode is like all coming together in this like <laughs> perfect like monolith to hundredth centennial episodes. This, yeah, this like exemplary centenary episode. Yes. But yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, you know, I agree. I, it definitely made me think of that tarot reading, which is going to be on Patreon. The other thing that that really resonated mm-hmm. with me is this idea of friendships are like a Swiss army knife of relationships. I love that. Right? I it. thought that was so good. Such a good idea that like the understanding that your friendship essentially a, a foundational dynamic and whatever you're doing with it mm-hmm. is okay. Like you can be a friends that read together. You can be a friends mm-hmm. that party together. You can be a friends that collaborate on a podcast together. Yes. It could be a friends that have yes. sex together. The people who have like work wives and work husbands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That all these different, yes. And then she named that too. One of the functions of friendship can be sex. Absolutely. And I feel so validated. Like, like on a side note, I feel so validated by that. I've been saying <laughs> I fuck my friends for a long time. And I say it, you know, tongue in cheek, but not really. <laughs> and then you know when she's when she was explaining all this and she's like yep and you know sometimes you fuck your friends I was like oh my god yes you do that's exactly how I feel <laughs> so I'm like, oh my god. I never thought I was gonna be validated in this, in this particular area of my life I feel entirely validated <laughs> yeah particularly now I think that uh, so many more uh, uh, folks within my my circles are talking about the skin hunger that they've experienced mm. and the fact that during the pandemic in particular, if they were not seeking out, pursuing or in romantic relationship, that you had your friends mm. around you and that you still wanted to cuddle and wanted to hold hands mm. or wanted to kiss. And like, then you look over at your friend and you're like, so what you <laughs> right? so, Yeah. <laughs> so that stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing that we point our friendship at is this work that we do. Exactly. We come together. We we have aligned values around challenging mm-hmm. the status quo, shaking things, blowing them up, and showing examples of alternatives, permission, and mm-hmm. inspiration around different ways of of living, loving, and thriving. So, I feel proud yeah. of the work that we've done, and I feel proud of our relationship. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love you very much. I love you. Oh, we're the cutest. Um, If you want before actually we go in the spirit of all of Effie and my cuteness and hilarity, we want to leave you with some audio that has not made it on air over the past hundred episodes. Enjoy. One action. Lola Jean facilitated. Shit. Yes. And now Jola. Jola. (laughs) I was so in my head just then. I don't know. I'm like, what? And hopefully each of us can figure out how to get out of this house alive. (laughs) 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 But the Puritans that came over to colonize America were protest, protest. How do you say that? Protestant. Like a Prada bag with a stint. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who's edited whose editing skills are no less than magical. I was laughing at the idea that Nina's going to have to edit you saying that she has good editing skills. Every month, every week, every week, every week. BDSM educator. Kink life. But when I think of you and Alexis and daddy and and all that dynamics, I'm like, it's a no brainer. That totally makes sense. Like, why am I so surprised? (laughs) Clearly she's her daddy. (laughs) (laughs) The quarterly figures are killing me. Can we talk about bar plugs? (laughs) Stay curious, friends. What?
To find out more about Jamie's work and to read her latest publications about jealousy, competition, and cooperation and friendships, you can visit her website, kremslab.com, and find her on Twitter, at Jamie Krems. And while you're online, of course, check us out. Check out our new look on Instagram. Go onto our Facebook group and talk about the episodes and go to Patreon so that you can get some of the behind the scenes and go see that tarot card reading that we were talking about. We are excited about this 100th episode and the 100 more to come. And the best way that we can continue to grow our audience is if you like or share or subscribe to our podcast, either on Apple or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to podcasts, please leave us a comment, rate the show, share the episodes with friends. And if there are things that you would like us to explore now in our next 100 episodes, then you can reach out to us by sending us an email at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. You can send us a voice memo to that same email email, or you can give us a call at 201-870-0063. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who's truly a friend of the show. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Curious Fox Podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.